Welcome to Portraits of Honor. We stand in the swiftly fading shadow of our World War II veterans and heroes who united for a single purpose, to honor life, liberty, and justice for all. They were soldiers and sailors, airmen and mechanics, nurses and pilots, radio operators, ordinary people who did extraordinary things. Our mission is to preserve their stories, to bring their experiences to life for a new generation. This is our tribute, our act of honor. Through their words, we explore the essence of honor and remember the sacrifices that were made. For just the cost of a cup of coffee each month, you can help us preserve their stories. Visit portraitsofhonor.com to learn more. Join us as we journey back in time, as we listen, learn, and remember. This is Portraits of Honor. Let the stories of these heroes begin. This interview is presented in two parts. This is part one. This exciting episode features Jerome Wilner, a World War II bombardier navigator who went from Cornell to the skies of Europe. Jerome defied the odds to survive 30 harrowing missions on B-17s over Germany, surrounded by deadly flak. Hear how his indomitable spirit carried him through the war and peerless bomb runs. From academia to the fierce theater of war, Jerome's story is a testament to adaptability and resilience. This interview was recorded on May 12, 2021, in Rockville, Maryland. And uh, so again, tell me your, your full name. My full name is Jerome Wilner, but I prefer to be called Jerry. Okay. And what's your date of birth? May 29, 1923. Okay. Coming up in a couple of weeks. Hopefully. And um, and where were you born? I was born in Brooklyn, New York. Oh yeah? Mm-hmm. Very good. How long did you live in Brooklyn? For the first uh, 16 years of my life. Then I went away to college and I've never returned since then. Where'd you go to college? Cornell. Okay. And so you, you got a full year of college in? Two and a half. Or two and a half before the war yeah. started. Mm -hmm. Okay. You were, what were you studying? Well, <laughs> that's questionable. My major was listed as dairy industry with a major in ice cream manufacturing. Really? Right. I don't know if that's on the list anymore. <laughs> <Is it? laughs> don't kid yourself. Hey. It's an art to make good ice cream. I love ice cream. I, I worked, twice I worked for ice cream manufacturers. One was Borden's Ice Cream in New York, and the other was Seal Test Ice Cream in Washington. Okay. Yeah. But I graduated as a bacteriologist. Okay. Well, you could use that in the... I did. So you were at, at Cornell when uh, World War II started for us. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Tell me about, about that. You did a little bit a while ago. 
But well, it, it, it was, as most people know who knew anything about the time, it was a big surprise. We woke up on Sunday morning and began to find out about a bombing at Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. And at that point, there was nothing done anywhere at all in that entire town except listening to uh, news. We couldn't watch it, of course, because we had no television in. So it was a question of finding the best radio spot for the best signal and plant one's self with a radio and listen to as much as we could. That, that went on uh, all night. There was no studying, nothing was done. I don't think we ever undressed and went to bed at all. What did you think the mood was on people you were around at the time? Anger or just shock? Oh, uh, total disbelief, first of all. Total disbelief. Uh, questions like, are you sure that's true? Is, is that what happened? How do you know that's true? Uh, those kind of questions. And then when we were all certain that it was true, then the anger began to set in. And the fear of going to war. At that point, the United States was not technically at war. We were helping the, Brit the British people uh, in their war in Europe, but we were not at war until Congress met a few days later and the president asked them to declare war. Well, then it became a fear of drafting and enlisting, and where should I enlist? And this of itself became <clears throat> not a problem, but a large question for a lot of us. You see, the, uh, the Agricultural College at Cornell is a land-grant college, and all the students, the male students attending a land-grant college at Cornell had to put in at least a one full year of ROTC. Well, that just happened to be field artillery training. Well, the experience was wonderful. I mean, I learned how to, I learned how to ride horses, that is. Yeah. I learned how to hitch up a four-horse team. I learned how to drive a four-horse team from any one of the four horses. It was wonderful, but of no earthly use whatsoever to me in the outside world. <laughs> well, anyway, then the word came down that uh, all of those who had had at least one year of ROTC would be designated to officer training school. Well, of course, that never happened. My roommate and I decided, well, we needed to enlist. And so we thought, well, we could enlist in a service whereby we could go on to officer training. So we tried to enlist in the field artillery branch of the U.S. Army. Well, he was accepted and I was not. Why? I don't know, because they didn't tell me. My grades were good. I, I like to think, well, I don't like to think, I have to think, that it may have been because of my height. I mean, a small guy can get shot just as easily as a tall guy. <laughs> so, 
So I, I became a little angry plus. I pushed aside my anger at the Japanese and I became angry at the U.S. Army. I said, I'll fix them. So I went downtown and I enlisted in the U.S. Army Air Corps and I was accepted. And that became my odyssey. That started the whole thing. Yeah. Where, where did you go from there? Take me kind of through yeah. the whole... Well, it got a little silly there. I was in Ithaca, New York at that time, just 20 miles from Binghamton. In order to enlist, I had, need to, I had needed to go to Binghamton. Okay. Well, at Binghamton, I was told, okay, uh, you better go home, wherever that is. And at that time, it was in New York. You better go home and wait to be called. So I did. I went back to my mother and father's home in New York and waited to be called, which was shortly after that. I enlisted in November and I was called in February after being told that I would finish college before they called me. <laughs> what year? I enlisted in November of 1942 and I was called in February of 1943. Now they did promise me I would finish college and I had a year and a half to go. <laughs> that never happened. Anyway, I received notice at my folks home in New York. I received my call. Well, as it turns out, I had to go back to Binghamton in order to get on the bus with another bunch of fellows to be sent to Atlantic City. So <laughs> the whole thing was ridiculous. At any rate, that was my first base, Atlantic City, where we, where we marched up and down the boardwalk really? with Springfield rifles on our shoulders. I bet that was a sight. 12-pound <laughs> rifles. It was marvelous, especially the best part was trying to march in close order and drill on the sand. <laughs> oh, we had fun. <laughs> well, I spent one month there and then was sent to Northfield, Vermont. In Northfield, the U.S. Army Air Corps had taken over what had been a boys' academy and they had staffed the entire school with Piper Cubs, Piper Cub airplanes, mm -hmm. to give us our introduction to flying. And that's where I learned to fly a Piper Cub. You did? Yeah. Not, not solo, not solo. They would, would not let us solo. But I did fly uh, with an instructor in the back seat, in the, si in the side seat, the Piper had side by side. That was, uh, I don't know, about 12, me 12 weeks of, of training, teaching us the ins and outs of flight and flying. Yeah. You know, why does an airplane fly? And from there, we were sent to uh, Nashville, Tennessee for classification, one, two, three, pilot, bombardier, navigator. And at Nashville, we spent 18 weeks of going through various and sundry tests of all kinds, eye tests, physical tests, 
whatever, and I wound up being classified one, two, and three, pilot, bombardier, or navigator. We spent 18 weeks in Nashville, and now we are no longer just members of the U.S. Army Air Corps. We're now sent to Maxwell Field, Alabama, Montgomery, Alabama. Yeah. I've been there. As aviation cadets. And now we get to wear uniforms of the U.S. Army Air Corps aviation cadets. And we are so proud. And that's where we learned what the guys at West Point and the U.S. Naval Academy go through in terms of upperclassmen and lowerclassmen and get down and give me 20 type orders and running, oh, I would say five miles out and back in 102 degree heat in the summertime in Alabama. Yeah, that's... Murder. I know what that's like. <laughs> Luckily, every barracks had a Coke machine. And in that temperature and that humidity, those Cokes came out almost solid ice. <laughs> we couldn't wait. That's what kept us going on the way back, <laughs> was the thought of those Coke machines. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> But we came out of there more men than boys, I guarantee. Because the physical exercises, the, the physical training, the physical education was, was tantamount. It was, was uppermost in importance. Well, from Maxwell Field, Alabama, the next step was, since I had been classified as pilot, next step was uh, Lakeland, Florida primary flight training. And that's where we were using Stearman PT-17s. Mm -hmm. Beautiful plane. You couldn't do anything wrong with that airplane, except when I got into it, of course. <laughs> well... Ask me about the Stearman later, and I've got something to tell you about it. I guess it was supposed to have been an 18-week course. Okay. After about... I'm going to guess now because it's, it's, it's hazy. I'm going to say six to eight, maybe 10 weeks of training. I was scheduled for check flight with an Air Corps pilot, a first lieutenant pilot mm -hmm. in the back seat, took off, flew around, came back, landed, no problems, and got the word right then and there that I wouldn't do as a pilot. Oh, really? I got the reason, they explained, he explained it to me, I was too mechanical. I had to think too much about what I was going to do before I did it. In combat, you cannot live that way. I, I learned that lesson quickly, and I learned that it's an important lesson to learn. So from Lakeland, Florida, I was sent for further classification, <laughs> boy, this is, to uh, Georgia. Where was it in Georgia? The name the name escapes me now, but it was a uh, it was a kind of a holding okay. place where we had nothing to do. From there, I was sent to Moody Field in San Angelo, Texas, for bombardier navigator training, eighteen weeks, and that's where I got my commission as a bombardier navigator. Very good. Now, of course, we're all we're all happily we're all happily drinking as commissioned officers, 
we've got our bars on, not knowing and not realizing, I should say, where we're going. You were commissioned as a lieutenant? Yes. Okay. I left out a step, as a matter of fact. What was that? I left out Tyndallfield, Florida, after Georgia. Uh-huh. Most important step, aerial gunnery school. My gosh, I just showed you the wings. <laughs> yeah, 18 weeks in a hellhole at that time, which was Panama City. I understand yeah, yeah. today that Panama City is not the Panama City it was. No. <laughs> But nobody wants to know what the Panama City was. It was a hellhole. Well, we had to spend 18 weeks there. Now, it was good education. I learned while at aerial gunnery school, I fired 45 automatic, Thompson submachine gun, M1 rifle, O3 Springfield rifle, 12 gauge shotgun, 16-gauge shotgun, twin shotguns in a turret, shot skeet, and 50-caliber air-cooled air-to-air with a tow target. Right. <laughs> if they had it to shoot, I shot it. <laughs> <laughs> the last Beef 24 guy I, I met said he really liked the skeet shooting. I loved I was good at skeet shooting. Skeet shooting. <laughs> Heat scooting? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was. I, I turned out to be pretty good at skeet, good. even with the even with the shoulder hold. Twelve and sixteen. Sixteen gauge was was okay, you know. But twelve gauge, you had oh the shoulder. Mm -hmm. If you've never shot a shotgun before, and they tell you. Hold it firm against your shoulder and press your cheek against the stock. You know, don't do it. <laughs> but that taught you how to lead your target. Oh yeah, that's that was the, that was the, that was the intent for the whole thing, leading the target. Because in those days, the uh, attacking planes mostly were flying what what they called a pursuit curve, bomber, attacker starts out with his nose pointed at the plane he wants to hit but then starts coming in like this and now he's on a pursuit curve and he's firing all the way but your lead is changing if you're, you're on a stationary platform here mostly and your guns are pointed out the window out the side window or from the top turret or whatever and your lead is constantly chaining, changing as his curve is changing and that's what they're trying to teach us. Okay. Most of the time it didn't work. You had to guess, really had to guess. Some of us were better guessers than others, I suppose. Yeah. But that, that, was, that was fun. Aerial gunnery school was fun. Bombardier school was not fun, especially dropping 100 pound bombs and miscalculating because the, the planes that were used were twin-engine Cessnas, and they were rigged with Norden bombsights, the kind we were going to use in combat. Of course, the practice, practice was on, were on movable platforms about 20 feet off the floor, and we were sitting up at the top of these platforms with these bombsights, 
tracking what was called a bug, a little motorized thing that was programmed on the floor to see if we could hit it. Okay. Well, it was totally different. You get into an airplane and you're on a regular bomb site and you've got a 100-pound bomb that you're going to drop on a painted target. Myrtle Beach. Myrtle Beach actually then was comprised of a number of small islands offshore and each of the islands was painted with targets like a battleship or a building or just a big circle with a bullseye in the middle and that's what we used to practice bomb. Well sometimes some of the guys would make a mistake with their calculations, their preset calculations that we had to put into the bomb site. Mm -hmm. We used a calculator called a V6, into which you put wind speed, wind direction, uh, plane direction, altitude, whatever, and you came up with numbers that you preset into the bomb site. And the bomb site was supposed to automatically calculate all of this junk and say, okay, you can now drop a bomb into a pickle barrel from 20,000 feet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we believed it. We believed it. Oh, it God. Was to start with. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, I'll never forget. Sometimes some of the guys would actually, what, what was called, throw a bomb off the range which meant they not only missed the target, but it landed on some rancher's land somewhere. Never, never within a, a, a populated town, thank goodness, but it would always land in some rancher's land and of course the word would come down and there was a captain who was in charge of all the bombing instructions. And every day before we took off, he would give us a final instructions and he would always, always end it by saying, and the Lord help you if you throw a bomb off in the range. <laughs> Big trouble there, huh? Some things one never forgets, Jeff. Well, from there, it was, as I said before, it was a question of where do we go from here? And there was a war going on in Europe and there was a war going on in the Pacific. So we didn't know which, in which direction we were going. So they started to give us shots for going in all directions. <laughs> oh, yes, typhoid shots, paratyphoid shots, dengue fever shots. But then the next thing was formation of crews. So we, 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 went, we got 30 days leave and then report back to Charleston, South Carolina. That's when our crews were formed and that's when we started to take serious hours, put serious hours into flying in B-24s because up until that time we hadn't seen a B-24. We didn't know what a B-24, we knew what a B-17 was because we had seen them on the field, that moody field where we were in school. There was always a thing between the B-17s and the B-24s. Uh, the powers that be always seem to go for the 17s more. Why they never liked our flying boxcars, I'll never know. That's what we called them. B-24 could actually go farther, couldn't it? Could go, go farther with a heavier load. Farther? Faster? 
think, maybe. Yeah. Um, but I think the B-17 could probably take more damage. Maybe so. I'm sure of it, judging by some of the damage we took. Although, we went down a few times. Did you? Didn't crash in terms of what one might see in the movies. Mm -hmm. But uh, we had some problems three times, yeah. After you got your crew together and everything, finalized training, uh, where was it you were uh, sent to? What, what base or airfield? Well, <laughs> this is where it gets nice. We were sent from Charleston, South Carolina to Camp Kilmer on Long Island with the word that we'll be there until we have enough planes so you can fly over to England. We were under no restrictions except, except one. We were under orders to be on the field by seven o'clock every morning for roll call. After roll call, we could do as we darn pleased. And so it was just a, crane, a train ride into New York City, which is where we wound up every single day. All, all four of the officers, the pilot, the co-pilot, navigator, and myself. Every day after roll call, we, we, did, we showered, we shaved if we needed to, changed whatever clothes we needed to change, caught the uh, truck or the bus, whichever, to the train into New York City. And there we were until at least five o'clock in the morning so that we could make it back by roll call. Wow. <laughs> and we were at Camp Kilmer for two, two weeks. And even if they'd had enough planes for us to fly our own planes across the ocean, we were in no condition to do so. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but they didn't. So we traveled luxury-wise on the Queen Mary. That would take you like 10 or more days, right? On the Queen Mary? Yeah, or, or longer than that. It took from the, time, from the time we left New York Harbor. Of course, you'd have to zigzag, and so that would slow you down. I think it took four days. Oh, really? You were, you were moving? We out, one night we outran a submarine, according to the captain, because the Queen Mary could do 24 knots on the surface. Oh, okay. Submarine could only do, what, 15, yeah, 12 yeah. to 15 under, under, the, under the surface. Yeah. And we landed at a place called Greenock in Scotland. Yeah. And from there we trained down to from from there we trained down to england to our various and sundry bases had a very pleasant experience at at greenock what was that we boarded the train and uh, didn't have i mean it was just regular seats so everybody took seats and i i wound up in an aisle seat two and two and on board each car came the scottish gray ladies that's the, uh, their equivalent of the Red Cross. Okay. And they were giving out little packages of goodies. And as they were approaching from the far end of the car, I could hear them to each, to each man, they gave a package of something, and I could hear the lady say, Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? 
But I couldn't hear what the guys were responding to them. So when the lady came to me and gave me a little package of goodies, she asked, who are you? So I told her my name. They were not asking, how are you? Uh, who are you? They were asking, how are you? <laughs> well, I never made that mistake again. <laughs> Whenever I spoke with a Scot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wonderful people, wonderful people. Anyway, that that uh, that was that was the last peaceful civilian type time I spent in uniform. From then on, it was uh, we were at, uh, at our base was at base was at uh, Norwich. Well, actually, the base was Shipdom, which was about. 20 miles west of Norwich. And Norwich was a big town just south of the Wash. Now the Wash, uh, if, you can, if you can kind of visualize the uh, island itself of England, the southern end is kind of rounded like this. The eastern shore, the, the White Cliffs of Dover come up this way. And then they go far enough up into the North Sea, and then there's a big curve in, like so. And then the rest of the shore goes up like this. And this area of water is called the Wash. And just south of there was Norwich. And just south of Norwich was London. So Shipton wasn't that far from London, if you get my meaning. I'm beginning to. <laughs> It was 48-hour past time when it happened. So how did you like London? Uh, I liked it. I liked it. For a person such as myself, I'm, I'm not the real uh, sightseeing, run-around type person to museums and, and things like that type person. I will go to a museum, and I have there and here, but just because I've planned to do that and I'd like to do that and I know what I'm going to see when I get to the museum, but just to get, go to London on a 48-hour pass after having flown missions four days in a row, I all I want to do is get a hotel room, be able to sleep comfortably, go out to a, a restaurant and have a decent dinner, you know, things like that, have, have a couple of good drinks, and go with my buddies, my pilot, my co-pilot. There usually were certain instances that would broke into that aura, you know, but mostly we had a good time in London, yes. I liked the people. They were kind of edgy with us populating their islands as we did. You Yanks. <laughs> Only trouble with you Yanks is you're overfed, you're overpaid, and you're over here. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Heard that many times. <laughs> did did have an experience at Piccadilly Circus? Yeah. We'd heard about Piccadilly Circus, which is a circle with a monument to the sailor. What was his name? The famous British naval commander, whatever. There's this humongous monument right in the center. Okay. And it was 
the place where if you would like to take advantage of the services of a lady of the evening, that would be the place to be. So one evening we decided to see what that was all about. Well, we went to Piccadilly Circus and uh, my pilot was a Boston Irishman who stopped at nothing. Bill Dolan, we, <laughs> we were standing there and the girls were, would, would not stop. The girls were moving round and round the circle. So finally Bill said, the heck with this. And he reached out to touch one of the girls to stop her. And she said something to the effect like, don't stop me, honey, we can't stop. <laughs> the thing was, they were supposed to keep moving. And if they wanted to stop, they had to stop to you. They had to approach you. You couldn't approach them. <laughs> and here he was reaching up to grab her. You know? So we learned about Piccadilly Circus. Then we went somewhere to drink and eat. And we didn't learn until much, much later along in our service in London, and I'm talking about nine months later, that we learned that all this delicious steak with gravy that we had been eating wasn't beef steak at all. <laughs> it was horse meat. Oh boy. Yeah, they had a lot of rationing. And it was delicious. <laughs> I don't know what they did to it. <laughs> <laughs> but who cares? <laughs> yep. Well, that's good. <laughs> and we want, we did wonder why is this, why is this steak always served at any restaurant? It's always served with gravy. I guess to cover up what it really, <laughs> really is. <laughs> <laughs> we did have, we did have some good times. Yes. Yeah. This podcast is a charitable supported public service. To learn more about the veteran featured on this podcast, please go to portraitsofhonor.com. There you'll find more stories, portraits, and ways to be part of this act of honor. Every day, a few hundred World War II veterans pass away, and soon they'll all be gone. For the cost of a few cups of coffee each month, you can help us support the mission to give all these deserving veterans their portrait of honor and record and memorialize their stories forever. Please go to portraitsofhonor.com today to make your donation and show your support. Leave us a review and share this episode. By remembering the past, we can inspire a better future. Join us next time on Portraits of Honor.